You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1951 film, The Steel Helmet. So this movie takes place during the Korean War. We follow immediately in the aftermath of a group of American soldiers who were taken in as POWs, and they were executed by the North Korean soldiers. Only one of them survived, a Sergeant Zack, and that was due to a lucky deflection by his steel helmet. You see it on, yeah. even on his helmet, you see the bullet hole. He is found by a little South Korean boy, and he nicknames him Short Round. We don't, I don't think we ever really figure out his real name. No. And the kid follows him around a little bit, and, you know, Sergeant Zack doesn't want him around, but he eventually agrees to, you know, have him hang around until they find a place where they can drop him off. And further traveling, he runs across a medic, a Corporal Thompson, who is African-American, and his, his group suffered, I believe, the same fate, where he's by himself. So they're going around looking, and then they stumble across this unit. With the, uh, led by a Lieutenant Driscoll. Driscoll and others. So eventually they're running around. They don't know really where they are, but they get to a, find a temple, a Buddhist temple. Yeah, actually, if I recall correctly, I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but Driscoll's unit has been tasked with finding that temple and making yeah. it an observation post. Yeah, they go in so there. So they can and they call in artillery from that spot. Yeah, they set up a radio post, too, but one of their missions is also to find a North Korean soldier, but not kill him, but and take him in as prisoner and try to get information out of him. Yes. So while they're hanging out, they're just staying there at this temple, but want, they, we later find out that there is a North Korean soldier hiding in there, I believe, under the basement. Yeah. And one day, while one of them is on patrol, that he kills one of them. But at, like the after it's discovered, the dead soldier, they find the guy, they bring him in, they start to interrogate him, but he doesn't try. He doesn't give him any information, and not only does he that, he specifically waits where he's alone with the, a, one of the soldiers is named Tanaka he's Japanese American and the Corporal Thompson is African American and he uses that pointing out the pointing out the treatment of Japanese Americans during World War II to Tanaka and the treatment of African Americans to Corporal Thompson trying to see if they can help him escape which they don't buy at all and eventually there's more firefights going on um when the the kid short round is is killed, and the kid was always uh, has Portwright's prayers. There was a prayer that she he wanted to be exactly like Sergeant Jack, the um, North Korean POW who understands English, reads that and laughs about it, and that infuriates Zach to the point where he shoots him and kills him. Yeah, and it looks like he might face repercussions for that. But right as that, they're ambushed 
by this un- never-ending squad of North Korean soldiers. So yep. they're isolated. They've been trying to get the radio, but the radio's not working. So it gets into a big shootout. Eventually, though, they get the radio working so where they can get into a calling some artillery. Yep. And it looks hopeless. They hold them off. And then at the very end, they're rescued by this other squadron of soldiers. Uh, a couple of them die, but I believe uh, Sergeant Zach, a few of them survive, a few of them are killed. But eventually, they're just, even though they can see that they are fatigued, they've just went through this horrible battle, they lost a good deal of their men, they're told to pick it right up, we have to keep on going, and that's yeah. even the end of the movie. They say, this is a never-ending story. That's yeah. how the title goes. So... You know, we list, just listening to the bare bones structure of this movie. You're, I have some people might be thinking, "Well, what, what's to mine out of this?" Yeah. And I, this is a B movie. We need to point this out. This was yeah. made in 1951. This is it was made by Lippert Pictures. This is not Universal. This is not even somebody like RKO at the time. This is not one of the major studios in yeah. Hollywood. This is low budget. Not a lot of big name actors. The actor who played the actor who played Corporal Thompson, the African American, is the most notable James Edwards because he was in a Kubrick movie, The Killing. But even in that movie, he was just a kind of a small role. He's yeah. been in some notable stuff, but always just as a bit guy. This is probably his biggest, juiciest role. But I think it's a good movie, and I think there's a lot of things to mine out of it. Even though, yes, when you just look at it, it is a B picture. This is something. Yeah. You know, you would see before you would watch the big Universal or MGM yeah. film, right? And, and back in the days when, I, uh, you know, television was around in '51, but still, you had the the typical trip to the movie theater would involve uh, watching newsreels, then watching that B film, which would typically be a shorter film. And this film only runs an hour twenty four, so it is one of those shorter films. And then the big feature film after that, um, it's. And, you know, it is true this is a, a B movie, but it's it's one that it's very telling that it has been selected to be part of the Criterion Collection. And mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. and if you look at lists of critics, many film historians and say that this is one of the most underappreciated war movies of yeah. all time. And, and I, I think I know when I when I watched it, uh, I thought. Wow, there's actually the seed here of a very good uh, A movie. Um, it's it's a it's a story that has some substance in that packaging of a kind of a classic uh, '50s era, maybe early '60s uh, B B war movie. Um, it also made me think of um, uh, something like Sergeant Rock comic books and kind of the mm-hmm. visuals of it and the the tough looking. You know, unshaven Sarge. He's Sarge. Got, he's, he's got, got a, a big beard. cigar he's hanging out of his mouth every every yeah. scene. He's got the cigar. It's great, and 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 the nicknames that they all that they have for each other. He he typically has for um, Sergeant Tanaka, for instance. They've served together before, so his nickname is Buddha Head, mm-hmm. right? And then he comes up right away. With the for the a nickname for the kid, and this is an interesting little scene at the beginning. Um, what when he first sees the kid, what does he do? He calls him a gook, right? And the kid corrects him, says, No, I'm a South Korean. He doesn't ever tell him his name, you're right. Uh, so what does he do? He gives him a, another nickname, calls him short round, 
and then at some point even explains what that means in the film. Um, so it, it's, it's got that great, you know, kind of B-movie feel to it. But uh, you can tell the scriptwriters have, have, yeah. have thought about what they were writing about, and they're, and they're um, engaging some very uh, uh, timely topics in, in the film, not only um, uh, uh, social and, and racial issues that were rife in, the, in America in the 40s and 50s, um, but the fact that the communists were very well aware of these sorts of things and made attempts to uh, uh, exploit that. And if you know anything about the history of uh, uh, POWs um, uh, across wars, World War, uh, I could talk earlier wars, but definitely World War II, Korea, and then Vietnam, you see a progression there where uh, Korea was kind of a unique or was unique in being the first war where uh, the enemy uh, consciously set about to exploit the racial tensions in America. Uh, the Germans didn't do much of that. The Japanese didn't do much of that at all. But they did. And um, in particular with uh, uh, black POWs and uh, uh, Japanese-American POWs who did serve over there. Uh, very often as um, interpreters and interrogators because they were familiar with the language and they knew that a lot of the Koreans would be familiar with Japanese because of the rather lengthy Japanese occupation of Korea. So they're, they're interweaving all of that history in here and then asking some very important questions, I think, about uh, American society as well as how to deal with that kind of effort on the part of the communist troops. It's, it's really very interesting and ahead of its time in that regard, I think. Yeah, I think at this point we should point out that the movie, we were talking about the script and people working on the script, this was pretty much the brainchild of Samuel Fuller, who is the director of this movie. And he, he like, this is a B-movie. He pretty much worked in B-movies throughout his career. And, in like, if you st he's, he was... um really greatly admired in the 60s particularly among the french new wave like john luc godard who was a famous french filmmaker he loved him so much he had him do cameos in his own movies but he's very he's the best way to describe him is he's a very meat and potatoes kind of guy he doesn't bs he's gonna make these movies short he's not gonna take you're not gonna take too much of your time and they're gonna be like very pulpy genre pieces like he did this there was another war movie he did in, about world war ii called fixed bayonets he did a lot of westerns. I think one was called "I Shot Jesse James." <laughs> he did. He, he did a lot of famous film noirs. The most famous was a "Pickup on South Street." So he does a lot of these B movies, but they're always a little something. And he was experienced um, in World War II before he became a filmmaker. He served in the war in the Big Red One. He earned himself a Silver Star, a Bronze Star, and a Purple Heart. And he was also, I believe, fought on Normandy in the beaches, and eventually if if the if it sounds somewhat familiar in 1980 after he became sort of this big name with the foreign filmmakers he made a movie called the big red one with lee marvin and mark hamill in the middle of his star wars fame which was about big red one and one of the things that goes to go to normandy in africa so yeah. he he's really the brain behind this and he i think he has this because he's had this service he has the idea of what you know 
what makes the servicemen, not only in World War II, but in Korea, and especially with World War II, this looms greatly over this movie. Yeah, and you can tell he's got a lot of, as it were, inside uh, experience on in, in small units. Um, I think the... I think the portrayal of Sergeant Zack's uh, relationship with the relatively, I guess, green Lieutenant Driscoll is... Uh, uh, you know, he's a sergeant. He's a lieutenant. The sergeant is the one giving you really rough Right, the and, 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 that, and that, that, that shows a familiarity, I think, with um, what often happens is you get junior officers that have very relatively uh, uh, little experience being put into these units and they have to rely on that uh, senior non-commissioned officer and they show that relationship quite well um, they show his ability to run that unit even though he's happened he's just happened in on the unit he has the benefit of of having sergeant tanaka there right and i think lieutenant driscoll is somewhat familiar with him too but i don't think they serve together um, but he is immediately able to take up, for a lack of a better term, that kind of the, the, the XO's role, even though he's not an XO, and run that unit effectively. And um, at first, again, this is kind of a, a sign that he knows what he's talking about, so to speak, in terms of unit, small units. Uh, at first, uh, there's a lot of friction between him and that lieutenant. There is a certain amount of lack of respect, but he will still follow orders. Uh, and then over the course of this uh, firefight, um, he, he sees the lieutenant taking on his role, and he actually ends up having some respect for the lieutenant. And there's a very poignant scene where the PTSD is really kicked in for Sergeant Zack. He thinks he's back in World War II. The lieutenant, and he, he reproaches the lieutenant and says, didn't you hear what the colonel said? Right, because he had told a story about a colonel to giving yeah. them Colonel Taylor, the famous. There are two men on this beach: those who are dead and those who are going to yes. die. Don't get off this beach. So the lieutenant realizes what's going on there. He ends up getting killed in this firefight, um, and uh, they had a previous conversation where the lieutenant had asked him to swap out those steel helmets with him, right? Because he thinks, well, maybe you know, he's trying to trying to. Um, be on friendly terms with him it doesn't work maybe it'll give me luck he says no i'm not going to swap out my helmet for you i'm going to swap out my helmet for somebody like that colonel and he tells this story this guy knows we're going to die he leads us on the beach anyway that's an officer right boy that comes across as authentic um and uh, uh by the end of the film though he has gained respect for that lieutenant who died and they had buried him and put his rifle in the soil at the head of the uh the uh, grave and he'd put his helmet on top the lieutenant's helmet but as he's leaving he's kind of gathered he's recovered his wits to some extent as this new unit arrives and he takes off his helmet with that bullet hole in it puts it mm -hmm. on the rifle and then he takes the lieutenant's helmet that's very symbolic i think of him having a uh, grown to respect that lieutenant through that through that uh, episode. And one of the other things I admire about this movie is just how he's this film for its time was controversial, and I think it was even from the army. And one of the things that people didn't like about or people criticized it for was it actually addressed the issue of Japanese internment camps, yep. which I think may have been the first 
film at that time to really address this. And it also addressed Jim Crow laws and segregation, like we mentioned earlier with the POW. But what's interesting, because this it was also should be pointed out that the Army, this is pretty much the first war where the Army was integrated. It was still segregated with World War II. So this is the first time you're having mm-hmm. a, like a company with a Japanese-American soldier, with white soldiers, and African-American soldiers. And but he, he takes that issue and um, addresses it head on. And it got, con- you know, it was controversy. It was interesting. And also the army was uh, did not like the fact that, you know, it shows American, American uh, Sergeant is executing a POW. Yeah. And he said that, um, you know, he said, we don't do that. You know, Fuller, um, he, cause he was talking about General uh, Commander Taylor. Mm-hmm. He said, here's the phone. Talk to him. And if he says we've never done something like that, I'll pull it. And eventually, they actually talked to him, and yeah. they, they backed off of that. Yeah, so it's just, he's just, he's not afraid to take these issues head on. I really admire yeah. that. I, I do too. Um, and the 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 scene with the POW is powerful because I think it shows um, the 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 power of the emotions of the instant can pull people into doing what are essentially war crimes. And we see, I think the scene was um, Short Round has just been killed. Yeah, he reads the prayer and, and he and mocks him. He reads the prayer and it says, please, Buddha, make Sergeant Zach like me. Mm-hmm. And the North Korean major, who has been kind of mocking all along, uh, says, what a stupid prayer. And something else, I forget what else he says. And this just enrages him. He turns around and shoots him. Lieutenant Driscoll immediately says, we don't do that. We're Americans. Um, But you can see, I I think, the realism of the emotional strain will lead human beings to do things like this. And that was very unusual for any movie. Certainly in the 40s and in the 50s, you would have, you would, this is the first time, as far as I know, where you, you see a shooting of a POW, a defenseless POW. Um, but you can understand the, the anger. It uh, doesn't excuse it, but you can understand it. And for me, you know, it, it, it once again brought back uh, accounts you, you read um, of people uh, during World War II specifically. I'm thinking of uh, Eugene Sledge, who says, you know, we, we had uh, uh, people that shot defenseless Japanese sometimes. Um, again, uh, because of the emotional intensity of combat. And also because sometimes they would be hiding grenades. But um, it, it was a part of it. It was real. And um, the general was exactly right. He said, hey, if you think this is false, prove it. And he knew full well this happened. So that, that's very brave, I think, of the filmmaker to face that. And I, I, I would have liked to seen the Army. I understand why they wanted to um, uh, back away from that and not claim it, so to speak, uh, because you don't want to encourage that kind of behavior. Um, but still, I think it would have probably been better to honestly face it mm-hmm. and use that as a, a point of discussion and I think that's also the case with, and I, as far as I know, the reaction to the uh, um, uh, raci- the episodes uh, illustrating the racial tensions in, in America, um, I don't think they had a reaction like that to those parts 
that's good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're right about the integration. Well, of, well what's interesting is it's never like they're not calling uh, Thompson the N-word. No. It's never getting to that point. There's actually, there's a little bit of hesitation because they think he's a straggler. And so maybe they think because he's black, he was yeah. doing, he was up to nothing, no good. Yeah. But once he's part of that company, they really don't yeah. use any slurs. And there's a couple of slurs by Zach's, particularly, you know, he calls him Buddha head and then he yeah. calls short round the gook. But after that, he doesn't use any other slurs yeah. towards them. So, right. or even other people say it towards Tanaka. So there isn't that much as far as racial the rate between it. the it's like saying that there's we can still get along and do this thing yeah the the the, the, the racial issue is raised with um, american culture back home it is not something that exists in the military unit and that contrast i think is very telling the korean has to make reference to how things were here back in 1951 that those issues do not arise in this unit you can see that uh corporal thompson is treated as an equal he is arguing with the other with the other guys in the unit telling them they're making stupid decisions and so forth and he's not a subservient position at all the same thing happens with sergeant tanaka too he's the second most experienced enlisted guy in this group and uh uh Sergeant Zach knows that immediately, and you can see the relief on his face when they first encounter each other. He's going, good, we have a chance to survive. Tanaka's here. Buddha Head's here. That, that nickname mm -hmm. is an affectionate nickname. It is not, not be politically correct today. But yeah, but it's affectionate. It's loving. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I like that. It's really showing that, you know, in the heat of uh, battle, in the heat of combat, Mere appearances between fellow comrades in that unit don't make a bit of difference. It is, what can you do to keep your buddies alive? That, that, that loyalty to each person in the unit, that overtakes everything. And it just makes you want to say, you know, it's, it's a shame that it couldn't have been a more immediate carryover of that kind of camaraderie and tight uh, uh, tight-knitted unit that kind of uh, morale that kind of ethic it's too bad that it couldn't have been carried over into the united states itself from the two from world war ii and and, and the korean war but e even in world war ii right it's not i'm not falling for it and i know that the alternate that they are offering is considerably worse yes and what's also interesting, you talk about how you wonder, you said early on how you wondered what this would look like if it was an A movie instead of a B movie. Um, because the main actor is Gene Evans. Now, I, this is the only film of his I've seen, like I said, outside of the actor that played Corporal Thompson. I'm not familiar with any of these other people. Yeah. Wonder, because if you read about it, like he wrote the script in a week. He shot the film in 10 days in Griffith Park in Los Angeles. Some of the tanks were made out of plywood. A lot of the extras for the battle scenes were uh, UCLA film students. So this is, this is as bare bones as it gets, which this is classic B-movie. He actually, some studios were trying to push this, like, we can make an A-movie, we can make this with John Wayne as the lead, as Sergeant Zack. And you see, I don't, if you take it, you make this a big budget movie, I think you make it 
less memorable and you won't be able to push those boundaries because you're now at a bigger Hollywood studio and it's a bigger audience. Yeah. And especially if you do somebody like John Wayne, you're going to get something maybe like, you know, Sands of Iwo Jima where he it's more heroic. And like yeah. like I said, there were tons of World War II movies at this time, which were kind of, I called them the victory lap movies because mm-hmm. it's all about how we won. Yeah. Um, what I was thinking of more more in line of, uh, 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 as it were, an, an ideal version of the film, an A version of the film was not so much let's cast well-known actors. I think I would have preferred to keep this same set of actors, but give them a big budget to tell the There's same so, story. I, I disagree. There's something about a B movie like this, like the low budget just kind of works. It's it's mostly in just one location. Yeah, I, I'm because I know he did Big Red One, and there were people who criticized during some of the battle scenes. Some of the German tanks were actually modified Shermans. Yeah, so which is not accurate at all. But something about that just B movie budget feel. We're doing this as bare bones as possible. Yeah. It's, it's always appealing to me. I, I like it too, but it just kind of bugs me. Like for instance, when they're when they're in the uh, uh, the Buddhist temple, uh, their their boots are making a lot of clunky noises. Wood, you can hear the the wood of the set, you know, creaking underneath their steps. It's it just comes off as uh, inauthentic, and um, even the the big gigantic statue of Buddha, right? It it looks. B movie, for lack of a better term, but I kind of like the fact that they keep going back to it as if it's watching the action, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, um, it, I might be reading too much into it, but it, it's as if uh, uh, um, uh, Buddha's watching the action on on behalf of Short Round and maybe Tanaka. That's an interesting point. I I don't know. Maybe I'm just yeah. over reading into things, but. The thing that bugs me and is way too B movie ish is the scenes where they are up there playing the um, uh, or using the radio to call in artillery and occasionally looking through binoculars and the, up there in that that same part that of the stock temple. Footage. Well, there is really no outside that they're looking into. You can kind of see the walls of the studio beyond. That bugged me. Now I was going. That's too low budget. I want to see actual outside shots here. It's Samuel Fuller. This is kind of his wheelhouse, so I'm okay with it, obviously. <laughs> One last thing I do want to bring up is that this is 1951. This is a Korean War movie, which itself is pretty rare. But it's interesting that they made it during the Korean War. Yeah. This is two years before the war was yeah. not, a, not ended because it's still technically going on. But what it's interesting, this... Because the reason why I wanted to do this because I just finished a very good book called On Dangerous Ground by Hampton Sides, which details the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir of the Marines in mm-hmm. 1950 during the Korean War. It was probably the most deadly battle of that war. And it got me to thinking why Korean War movies just aren't made. Because you had, in the 50s, because the war was still going on, you had this run. There was this, there was... In late. Like five years later, there was a William Holden movie called The Bridges at Toko Ri, yeah. Korean War. Probably the most famous one, I believe, is um, Pork Chop Hill, which had Gregory Peck in it, and that's another Korean War. But outside of that, there's really not much. I mean, some people will say, well, what about MASH? MASH kind of doesn't count because that's more about Vietnam, even yeah. though it takes place during the Korean yeah. War. And I always just wondered, why does... I mean, because it has this reputation as the Forgotten War. People think yeah. World War II... 
than Vietnam. Yeah. They don't really think of Korea that much. And I think that's a great, that's a terrible shame to all the people who served during that war. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know exactly why that is. I guess part of the part of the explanation is that war started only five years after the World War II. So there may, might have been just simply fatigue on the part of the public of not wanting to have to, as it were, go back into dealing with yet another war. That might be part of it. Another part of it might be the fact that um, it, there's an interesting way in which the Korean War is kind of in a gray area in terms of outcome. Um, Vietnam, uh, even though I would say the United States and South Vietnam had militarily won by 1972, um, by nature of our domestic situation, Congress basically cut off all funding for South Vietnam at that, after the end of that war. So it ended up being a defeat. And it was kind of a tragic defeat. So there is that attractiveness in that war, along with the civil and uh, civil unrest at home that was also part of that uh, era as well, that makes it attractive as a uh, project for filmmakers, I think. On the other end of the spectrum, World War II is you know, often called, quote, the good war, uh, clear, clearly delineated uh, uh, evil clearly delineated good, also clear victories. Um, so that war also has a certain appeal to movie makers. On the other hand, kind of in the middle, in this gray area, you have the Korean War, which um, I would argue actually ended up, uh, ended up with a, a positive result. I, I think still most people say it wasn't a clear-cut victory because uh, we, we did not pursue the North well, Vietnamese not, and the Chinese. That's not even technically over. Yeah, we did not pursue them into the North and, and, as it were, defeat them. But we did manage to preserve South Vietnam, or South Vietnam, mm -hmm. South Korea. Because they had taken Seoul. Right. And they were about and, to run over the whole continent. We were able to push them right. back. And, and much to the benefit of the South Koreans. Um, but still, it wasn't a clear-cut victory. And you're right, it ended up essentially on a truce, so technically it's, it's not even over. Um, so it doesn't have that kind of strong emotional grab that the other two and do. Outside of the Battle of Chosen, there's not really a lot of big name battles like you can even people who aren't historians they can tell you about pearl harbor or the landings on normandy yeah. or anzio yeah or and Okinawa. even in, but world war yeah the korean war they can't really tell you that much and there were enough of those kinds of battles in vietnam even though a lot of it was guerrilla warfare the north vietnamese were infiltrating people into the south so they had that going but there were still some big name battles in that in that uh, war so it had enough of that going on you had the you also had the, the, the drama of the uh, POWs as well. Um, and the POWs in uh, Korea were basically uh, not heard from much, kept in isolation on purpose. So there wasn't a lot of uh, exposure of uh, their um, uh, situation. All right, the North Koreans did not make too much effort to use them as propaganda tools, although they did make a great deal of effort to try to indoctrinate them and turn them into communists. And also the Chinese, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Chinese did it. As a matter of fact, they were quite brutal to them. Quite a few of them uh, lost their lives because of beatings and torture, things like that. 
Um, yeah, so it, it's like I said, it's it's just one of these. It's a war that's kind of in that gray area in terms of emotional impact. You have Vietnam, kind of a tragedy, right? You have World War II, a victory to use your term, a victory of uh, on a worldwide scale, the defeat of totalitarianism, right? It never really quite evolved that way in Korea or even in Vietnam because the Chinese and the Russians. Um, although involved, tried to keep their involvement limited so it wouldn't evolve into World War III. So to some extent, I think that explains it. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 